Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And we especially love bringing you stories about family businesses. And today we bring you one with a long history that begins with a fruit cart in 1859. Here is Alex Castle the master distiller at Old Dominic Distillery, to tell us the history of this Memphis family business. So one of the best things to me about working for Old Dominic and Decanale and Company is the history of it. That history dates back to 1866 and it is very tangible history. That whole family held on to so many documents and ledger books and letters. I don't know what they were thinking when they held on to it all, but I know we're, we're very happy that it's there now. The family history isn't just some story that's been passed down by word of mouth. It is a history that is very, very real um, and that we can show to everyone just how authentic that story is and to be able to be a part of such an authentic story um, and hopefully you know be a part of its its history eventually is just it's very rewarding so our founder Domenico Canale uh, was an Italian immigrant and he came over to the States in 1859 landed in New Orleans and decided to take a riverboat up to Memphis. He already had family here, his uncle had a business already. He decided to work for his uncle. That building is literally about 100 yards from the uh, current distillery. Worked for him for a couple years and decided to start his own company in 1866, at which time he founded Deaconale and Company. Started off as a modest little fruit cart and he would just go up and down what is now Front Street selling fruit. Over the years, that grew, became a much bigger distribution company, started distributing beer because he had refrigerated trucks, and decided in the midst of all of that to found Old Dominic Whiskey. He did not distill his own product, but he did buy aged product barrels from other states. So we have records of barrels from Ohio, Kentucky, Indiana, and he would bring them down on the railroads and uh, blend them here under the label of Old Dominic. It was actually one of the biggest whiskey brands in the southern region during that time. And of course, Prohibition hit, and so Old Dominic Whiskey had to stop being produced. Fortunately, the other parts of the company continued on, so the fruit distribution, the beer distribution, all of that continued on through Prohibition. And sadly, Dominico did not see the repeal of Prohibition. He actually died just a few days before it was repealed. Deaconale and Company continued on, just without the whiskey. Bring it up to, I guess it was the late 90s, they actually sold off the food distribution, but still maintained the beer distribution that they had. And so they were the Anheuser-Busch distributor in Memphis. And then in 2010, I believe it was, they actually sold that off as well. 
And so they kind of had lost all of their Memphis foothold. They had other businesses, other investments, just nothing actually in Memphis. And so in 2013, when they found a bottle of Dominic Toddy, basically they found this bottle full, still wax sealed. And they decided to crack it open. I believe one of them actually tasted the liquid, <laughs> but had that liquid analyzed. They sent it to California to see if we could figure out what actually was in that product. Because with all of the documents that the family held on to, they never held on to the recipe for this product. Go figure. And so with the help of a lab out in California, they learned the different components that were present in that bottle couldn't figure out the exact ratios or anything like that, so no specific recipe, but they were able to figure out what was in it. And then from there, we essentially reverse engineered it. And so today's president, Chris Canale Jr., wanted to see the company get back to Memphis, wanted more than just their headquarters to be here. He decided, this seems like a cool idea. Someone said, well, why don't you sell the brand? He said, no. This is how we get back to Memphis. And so he and his cousin, Alex Canale, decided to open up what is now Old Dominic Distillery. That construction project officially started in 2015. And that was the same year that they decided to bring on a head distiller. And I was lucky enough to get a message on LinkedIn. I had nothing better to do. I said, sure, I'll come down for an interview and ended up deciding to move to Memphis um, that same year. And so about a year of construction and we were actually ready to produce the first whiskey, not just out of Old Dominic, but the first whiskey produced in Memphis ever. There were no distilleries here even before Prohibition. Um, so December of 2016 was kind of a, a big year for Old Dominic and for Memphis. And then flash forward a couple months, May of 2017, and we were actually finished with all of construction and open to the public um, for our first tours at the beginning of May. Um, and since then, we have added multiple products. We now have two vodkas. We have our Memphis toddy. We have a gin that's about to come out. And we also have our Hewling Station bourbon and even the Hewling Station line. We're about to release even more products under it. So it's been a very, very busy two, two and a half years. And again, you're listening to Alex Castle, and she's the head distiller at Old Dominic Distillery. What a thing to do, and what a way to honor a family heritage. And what a way to honor a city by creating new jobs and, well, doing something Memphis had never done, producing whiskey. And by the way, Tennessee is a whiskey state. But Memphis was not a whiskey-producing town. And when we come back, we'll hear more of this remarkable story from head distiller Alex Castle, the story of Old Dominic Distillery, a local story. Oxford, where we broadcast, is a mere hour's drive south from the great city of Memphis. The story continues here on Our American Story.
And we're back with the story of Old Dominic Distillery in Memphis, Tennessee, and its master distiller, Alex Kessel. Alex was the first female master distiller in the state of Tennessee at the first whiskey distillery ever in Memphis. Here's Alex to tell us her story. So I am originally from Kentucky. I grew up in a small town called Burlington. It's about 12 miles south of Cincinnati, Ohio. It was definitely a type A, so when I got to high school, fell in love with maths and sciences and knew I wanted to do something with them. And I was talking to my mom, trying to figure out, you know, what could I do with my life? Because at 15, you need to know what you're gonna do with the rest of your life. And uh, she had been reading some articles and came across chemical engineering. I was like, that sounds perfect, but I can't teach, so what do you do with that? And uh, my mom, who doesn't drink, said, you can make beer and be a brewmaster, or you can be a master distiller and make bourbon. So that's perfect. That's exactly what I want to do. Truthfully, I have no idea why it sounded interesting, because I was one of those people in high school who did not drink. And like I said, my mom didn't drink. We didn't have bourbon in the house. Up to that point, my only experience with bourbon was my parents taking me to Maker's Mark when I was about five or six years old, and I hated it. Absolutely hated it. I remember my dad sticking his finger in the fermenter and eating it, and I thought I was gonna throw up. It just was so gross to me. I didn't like the smell of that room. And then, I can't remember if it was the start of the tour or the end of the tour, but they were handing out fudge. I'm a kid. I absolutely want some fudge. No one told me it was bourbon fudge. That does not taste like fudge. It was horrible. So that being my only experience with bourbon, I really have no idea why I ended up in this industry. But when I was 15 or 16, that just, it sounded so perfect. And being from Kentucky, you know, it was a part of my heritage, even if we weren't involved in it. And so I, that's, I went to the University of Kentucky to study chemical engineering and was fortunate enough to get a co-op while I was in school with a small company, not so small now, but a small company in Lexington called Alltech. And at the time they did animal nutrition supplements and had a brewery. And I thought, that's perfect, because I thought I wanted to do beer. Well, while I was there, they sneakily added two pot stills into the brewery and had no one to run them or clean them for that matter. And so my boss sent me and one other person from the engineering office to clean them because they had come all the way from Scotland so they had a lot of dirt on them from the travel. And uh, shortly after that is when he asked me if I wanted to observe a distillation. So not just polish the stills, but you can actually help run them. And instead of observing, I actually got to run the distillation that day my boss forgot that he had to take his kids to the dentist that day. And so I show up and he says that and I think, oh man, now I have to go to the office. This is going to be boring. And instead, in about five minutes, ran me through the entire process and said, if you have to, just shut it down. I'll be back later. And then left. And so I ran the stills that day. Did not have to shut them down, thankfully. And I guess because I managed to do that that first day, I was cheap labor, they didn't have to hire anyone else, so they just let me do it from that point on. So I filled over the first 100 barrels, I believe it was, of Pierce Lions Reserve 
And from that day on, that was all I wanted to do. I just wanted to make whiskey. And so I set off on that path and have been fortunate enough to know people in the industry and get my foot in the door and have stayed in it ever since. So after college, I, have, I did one year making laundry detergent because the industry, while it was growing, everyone was still so new, nobody was making money, which meant they couldn't hire anybody. Um, so no one was hiring at the time. But fortunately, one of the guys I used to work with at Alltech remembered that I wanted to be in the industry and so connected me with his friend who was a recruiter and was hiring for Wild Turkey. And so I managed to get on as a distillery production supervisor at Wild Turkey about a year after I graduated college and worked there for four years. Uh, started off as the number two supervisor. In about a month, that supervisor got shifted to a different department, so I very quickly became the number one supervisor. And so for four years, I was overseeing all of production at Wild Turkey, responsible for third shift and first shift, so the hours for that were spectacular. I woke up at 2 a.m. every day, so <laughs> definitely cut my teeth in a really good way up there. And then it was randomly the beginning of 2015 that I got that message on LinkedIn asking if I knew anyone who would be interested in a startup distillery in Memphis. And I took about two days to think about it and sent my resume in. And my first trip to Memphis was for the interview and I fell in love with the place. I fell in love with the city immediately. but also fell in love with the company. I, everyone I met during that weekend was absolutely fantastic. And then they actually brought me into the distillery, which at the time was a completely empty building. Um, the stairs were absolutely terrifying, but I went up them in heels. And uh, But seeing the space and seeing how much work was to be done I could see the challenge that it was, and at the time I didn't know I wanted that kind of challenge, but seeing it, having it put right in front of me, I realized that's exactly what I needed. And so it just, the whole concept of really doing start to finish with this company and with this brand was so thrilling. Creating a new brand and product is incredibly stressful but it was exhilarating. So just the distillery itself, because we do consider the physical space a product for us. You know, I actually got to sit in on interior design meetings. So I got to help pick tile for the bathrooms and light fixtures. And I was amazed at how much I enjoyed that. And then with the products themselves, of course, had to develop the liquid, which was super fun. You know, my nerdy side came out, but I also, got to have input on the bottles themselves, you know, the shapes, the labels, how they looked, everything. I got input on all of it. Um, whereas you know, where I came from, I had no say in any of that. I would never have say in any of that. Um, and so to be able to put my stamp on every aspect of the product and the brand, it was incredibly rewarding. So yeah, I'm fortunate to have owners who really do um, trust their employees, put faith in their employees. If they hired you to do something, they're gonna do everything they can to to make sure they let you do that job. Um, And like on a personal level, it's great. I actually do get along with them. We're friends, we've gone on trips together. Um, And over the years, I think I've proven myself to them to where they've let me take more and more control. 
and kind of oversee the day-to-day -day operations of the distillery. Don't let anyone tell you you can't do it. Women engineers aren't really a thing or weren't a thing when I entered college and female distillers weren't a thing at the time either. Um, so there were a lot of people who were saying that, you know, maybe, maybe go somewhere else, maybe do something else. And I ignored all of them and just pushed through. And now you see female distillers everywhere. You see women opening their own distilleries. It is fantastic. I mean, it's, it, seeing women in the industry goes right along with just how much the industry has grown and changed in recent years. Um, you know, it used to be super labor intensive and, you know, rolling around a 500 pound barrel, not the easiest thing. Most women probably don't really want to do that. Um, but so many things are now automated that that labor aspect really isn't there. Yes, the working conditions can be very interesting. You know, you're standing in 150 degree temperatures on a regular basis. Women can put up with that just as well as men can. But women actually have better tastes, better sense of taste and better sense of smell. So if anything, we're actually more qualified to be doing this. And so it's, I love going to conferences every year and there are more and more women each year. And it is, it's fantastic to not be the only one at the table anymore. So to see everyone embracing this change in the industry, it's, it's the best time to be a part of it. And great job by Robbie on that piece, finding it and producing the piece. And a special thanks to Alex Castle. That was her voice. And my goodness, she fell in love with math and sciences at the age of 15. We just fell in love with her and listening to her story for about 10 minutes. She didn't know what to do with her life. Her mom said chemical engineer. She didn't know what that meant, but she gave it a shot. And she had never really had much to drink in her life. Actually, didn't drink. But a summer internship at the University of Kentucky at Alltech changed her life. And we talk about that so much here on this show. The idea of young people getting out into the field and learning about their passions and learning skill sets that can, well, open up a life's vocation, as it did here, folks. And her nerdy side and her artistic side both being fulfilled at this distillery right here, just an hour up the road from beautiful Oxford, Mississippi, where we broadcast the city of Memphis, Old Dominic Distillery, their story, Alex Castle's story, here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and one of the things we love to do on this show is tell history stories, and sometimes they're big and grand ones that everyone kind of knows, and we tell you the rest of the story, and sometimes, well, they're stories you didn't know, but we thought you might want to. By the way, all of our history stories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life, and if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses, go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. Our next story comes to us from Benton Harbor, Michigan, and is a bit of local history you won't forget. Here's our own Monty Montgomery, a Hillsdale grad himself, with a story. Mm -hmm. 
In Benton Harbor, Michigan, there's an interesting story that started because of a Michigan eccentric. The media called him King Ben. They started calling him in the teens, they called him King Ben because he was mega wealthy and he, he ruled an empire very much like a Michigan Roman Empire. I mean, who, who had that much wealth and that much success in America? I don't know very many people. That's Chris Seriano, founder and curator of the House of David Museum in St. Joe, Michigan. A museum dedicated to an interesting bit of local history that got its start because of the so-called King Ben. Benjamin Purnell was born in Paducah, Kentucky in 1861 to a very, very poor family. He was the seventh son in the family. Grew up basically with nothing and was an intelligent child and loved to listen to the fire and brimstone campfire talks at night and that his father would give and uh, the townspeople. By the time Benjamin was 14 years old, he was extremely uh, book smart and could basically memorize a book cover to cover. And he was given the King James Bible for Christmas on his 14th birthday and he digested the whole Bible. And at that point, he felt like he should be a messenger from God and like a missionary. When he was 16 years old, he met Mary Purnell, his wife, and then were itinerant preachers through the South, up into the Midwest, where he set down roots in uh, Fostoria, Ohio. That's where he first started his first church. It was called the God House. A huge congregation of people, believers in his faith, which was a, a Christian communal celibate vegetarian lifestyle, very similar to the Shakers is what he taught. And that if you believed in all these things and were a Christian and uh, believed in God and Jesus, that you would have eternal life of the body on earth. You would never die. And it was in Fostoria that his daughter, Hetty, turned 14 years old. Hetty started her job, her first job, at a fireworks factory in Foster, Ohio. And he announced to the congregation that evening that Hetty, he was proud of her, that she had gotten a job and you could see the factory out the windows of the church. And about halfway through his sermon, the fireworks factory caught on fire and actually blew up. So it was very obvious that nobody survived that explosion to the people in the church. And Benjamin and Mary went over to the window and were quiet. And uh, within a couple hours, authorities came banging on the church door and wanted Ben and Mary to positively identify the remains of Hetty's body. And he refused to acknowledge that that could be his daughter because of the fact that here he is teaching, if you believe this faith that I'm, that I'm sharing, you'll live forever. You'll never die. You'll have eternal life of the body. So there's no way that he was going to admit that his daughter was dead, especially to his whole congregation. Immediately after that was that the townspeople had to get together and have a huge funeral for Hetty. She was a very popular kid in town. It was the most decorated funeral in the history of that town. It's not a small town. 
And after the funeral, they stoned the church and drove Benjamin and Mary out of town. They didn't want them there anymore because they wouldn't partake even in their own daughter's funeral. At that time, Benjamin already had knowledge of the Albert and Louis Boschke, who were considered the second leading wagon factory manufacturers in the country behind Studebaker. And they were here in Benton Harbor, Michigan. Extremely wealthy, extremely successful men with a lot, a lot of intelligence and a lot of connections. But the biggest thing was, is they were already believing in this faith. And when he arrived, he explained who he was and what he was doing, and they accepted him. So they gave Ben and Mary over $400,000 at that time, which was night, fall of 1902, to acquire the land and begin life at on Britton Avenue there in Benton Harbor. Life at the House of David basically consisted of strictly Christian lifestyle, they were all vegetarian. They were celibate, so they could come to the House of David and join at single, married, or married with 10 kids, didn't matter. They did not live anymore with their spouse. So the men were separated in mansions, different from the women, even different from the kids. The kids lived in a building called the Ark, which is also a schoolhouse and a dormitory, until they were 14 years old. Rules were that there was no, basically no contact with the opposite sex. If you wanted to have lunch or dinner with your spouse, you could eat for 30 minutes in the married couple dining hall in the basement. The men could also not cut their hair or shave their beards. But despite these rules, countless people looking for a new life flocked to the House of David, many of whom were wealthy industrialists. They acquired people from all over the world, and they, they didn't focus on recruiting highly intelligent, successful people, but they were a magnet to those kind of people. So those people from all over the entire globe flocked in, but when they joined, in exchange of life at the House of David, where you were given a place to live, a gorgeous place to live. You're given housing, food, clothing. In exchange for that, you gave them all your worldly possession. According to the people that I interviewed at the House of David, they felt that the biggest day in the history of the House of David was the day that 85 Australians landed in Benton Harbor. Amongst them were a husband and wife that owned a diamond mine. Along with them were world-famous actors and actresses and musicians. And by the 1920s, it's documented that the House of David had over $35 million in the bank. That's a lot of dough today. Mm -hmm. Along with cruise ships and trolley cars and bus lines and hotels and resorts around the world. And, and uh, the diamond mine and a gold mine in western Oklahoma and a coal mine in Kentucky. And the reason for the coal mine was because during World War I, when the government tried to ration the use of coal because of the war, Benjamin just went down and bought a coal mine and made it private. So they, because they generated their own power with coal, with giant coal turbine engines, 
uh, they generated their own electricity. So they, there was nothing that would stop them. People didn't want to sit around and just wait for paradise to come. They wanted to do something to occupy their minds, and they were good at it. You had a job that you were given. Benjamin would interview you and try to figure out what your talents were, and he was amazing at finding out someone's highest, best use, even though maybe you didn't know it yourself. He had the financial wherewithal. He had the, the, the power of people and the ability to take someone to the greatest in the world and the greatest in the nation. And because of that skill, the members of the House of David were able to create new inventions that they otherwise wouldn't have. Sometime in 1903, when a guy came from, joined from Sweden that was an ice cream maker, he helped invent the waffle cone, and then they uh, introduced it to the St. Louis, 1904 St. Louis World's Fair. There are people that say, no, this person made it, or this person made it. But the House of David, in fact, did make their own waffle cone starting in late 1903. Because they had cruise ships on the Great Lakes, they invented uh, the cross-propeller system because they lost some cruise ships from early storms that tipped them sideways because they were so tall and thin back in the day. They had 100,000 acres of farmland, so the quality of the fruits were very important to them. Benton Harbor had the world's largest grower to buyer fruit market anywhere in the world, and huge money. And the House of David had 100,000 acres of farmland, but they couldn't, they couldn't guarantee the quality of the fruit if it was a super hot, sweltering day, or maybe it was raining hard, or maybe a frost was coming, so they they thought, you know, we have to we have to invent some way of securing our investment in fruit. So they built the world's largest cold storage building, where people from the world's largest fruit market could pull off, pull up to the House of David cold storage building for pennies. You could put your fruits and vegetables in the cold storage units, which would take the temperature down to a point where it would stabilize the quality as long as you wanted to from that day that you brought it there. So the next day that that fruit market was really popping and dollars were big and the buyers were big, the farmers would fly over to the House of David cold storage, pull their fruits and vegetables out. They looked exactly like they did when they dropped them off. And they invented that, and they, 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 they were cutting edge on that. And so back in the 60s, when uh, NASA was planning on sending people to the moon, the astronauts, they were trying to figure out a way, how do you make a full meal be able to go into outer space with the pressure and not explode, and not screw up the astronaut's stomach if he does get it in there? And so they approached the House of David, who in turn took that process with their own scientists down to a powder form. So steaks, potatoes, whatever is on a, a full dinner plate, they made it into a powder form with an airtight wrap. And those little packets were what NASA sent to the moon with the astronauts House of David made. But the House of David's interest in travel wasn't just confined to outer space and the sea. 
It also extended to trains, miniature ones that you could ride on. In 1904, Benjamin and Mary Purnell traveled to the St. Louis World's Fair. There were so many reasons that they went there, but mostly to get ideas on how, how to do things to, with crowds of people. It was during that time that they saw and they traveled on uh, little steam engine trains built by the Cagney brothers out of New York. And those steam engine trains in St. Louis were hauling millions of people all over into this World's Fair during this whole year long event. So at the end of the World's Fair, Benjamin bought one of those little steam engine trains, had it brought back to Benton Harbor, Michigan, taken apart every piece of it, and they recreated those trains, made them better, stronger, slightly bigger, and they built eight of them just exactly like that and, and uh, from 1905 to 1908. By 1908 there was a fleet of eight 15 inch ste uh, wide steam engine trains. Which were promptly put to work carrying passengers around their amusement park. Something they inherited as a simple resort called Eastman Springs with the money their wealthy backers gave them when they first settled in Benton Harbor. The reason that they had the amusement park was basically because of the Australians, their desire to entertain. They wanted an avenue to be able to draw people in for the purpose of entertainment. And because the 85 joined on the same day that were world famous actors and actresses and vaudeville show people and, and musicians, they thought what better way to use that Eastman Springs Park as to turn it into an amusement park. So they, in, in 1905, they started building the railroad around the amusement park. They started building the amphitheater, which was state-of-the-art, world-class amphitheater. And they wanted, to, they wanted to entertain people. They wanted to get their message out through the form of music, basically. So when you arrived at the park, by your trolley car or your bus line, you just thought that you were gonna go to a show or you know you were gonna listen to a band, when in fact, you got on their little miniature train to go into the park, you bought, you got the whiff of those waffle cones cooking and the homemade ice cream, you couldn't resist that, like a Kilwins times 10, so you got that for a nickel, you went back in there and you got entertained, you got food for nickels to maybe a dime, um, you could drive the little race cars, you could go to the zoo, you could spend the night in their park hotel, you could eat at their vegetarian restaurant in the amusement park, but it was, they did it for an experience and for people to think of them as something more than just a fate. It was such a unique experience to see all these men with long hair and long beards, long beards, and very humble uh, Amish type uh, people and it, it was actually an awesome experience. I went there as a little kid and we went for years and it, it, it was a good feeling. It was like an old grandpa standing there. They were very kind, they were very accommodating. They would answer any questions that you had, they would help you with things. It was a unique experience and it brought people by the tens of millions. It was the leading amusement park in America only behind uh, Disneyland. 
And that was only after 1952. Before that, from the time it opened in 08 until the early 50s, there's nobody that had more people attending an amusement park in America more than the House of David Amusement Park. You know, Walt Disney came here and studied the House of David in 1950, 51. And he actually bought one of the House of David steam engine trains, one of the original ones, took it back to Anaheim, California with him, where he created his own little railroad there at his property first and then later at Disneyland. So it was a huge, huge success. But despite the continued popularity of the park, people didn't necessarily want to join it. And as a result of their belief in celibacy, one by one, the members of the House of David, including Ben Purnell, passed away until the point where they had to close it. It had closed in 74. Uh, people would still wander through. They were, you were allowed to go there and walk around and reminisce and feel your memories and stuff. They didn't keep you away, but it was closed. It was totally like a abandoned amusement park kind of thing. Uh, they closed everything down. They still ran a print shop. Uh, they still had their art department building where they made their own beautiful statuary. They still participated in, in uh, Blossom Parade floats and musicals and things like that. But, and they all, they just wanted to enjoy life quietly from there. You know, they were up there pretty good. It's like a fairy tale place in a way. It, they, they touched America in such unique ways. They, they definitely left their mark. They left a beautiful mark on the world. They touch people in unique ways. They, um, what they created will live on. You know, their inventions. Uh, there's so many things that live on way past them. They invited us in to feel it, to experience it, but then we had to go home and they got to stay. They found a pretty dang cool way to live. And they were happy all the way until they closed their eyes. They really were. And you're listening to Chris Seriano, and he's the founder of the House of David Museum in Benton Harbor, and that's in Michigan. And if you have stories to tell, send them to ouramericanstories.com. And if you like what you hear, what we do isn't free, but listening to it is. And we're a nonprofit, and we have expenses. And if you can spare 5 or $10 a month, if you really listen to the show and love it, go on to our website, ouramericanstories.com. We make it easy for you to give. It's tax deductible. We're an IRS-approved 501c3. A story from the House of David Museum. The story of Benjamin Purnell and all that he produced with his religious colony, his experimental religious colony, here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history. 
and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And now our next story comes to us from a listener in Valencia, California, named Richard Hood. This is a history story that Richard has been fascinated by, and he wanted to share it with us. You've probably heard that the darker the place, the brighter any light appears. Well, I'd like to share with you a story about a very dark place and a very bright light. In fact, an angel of light, known as the Angel of Mary's Heights. It all happened back in the month of December 62. And I'm talking about 1862, during our country's bloodiest war, the Civil War officially known as the war between the states, but more poignantly as the Brothers' War. One reason why it was called the Brothers' War is because the war actually did pit, some, in some cases, brother against brother. You can imagine, you know, if you have an older brother and he's gone off to Afghanistan to fight, that's one thing. What if he was going off to Afghanistan to fight you? That kind of changes the whole familial situation. And in the Civil War, the Brothers' War, that not only happened on occasion, a father was sometimes pitted against son. So complicated. So let me tell you more about this angel, though, because at the Battle of Fredericksburg, there was an important vantage point, a clifftop called Mary's Heights. The Southern Confederate Army was wisely using it as a cannon emplacement. Below this cliff was a protective wall keeping the Northern Army from gaining that cliff top. Hunkered down behind this wall, protecting the stronghold, was one of many soldiers, in this case a Confederate sergeant who would, during America's bloodiest battle to come, Antietam, would later lose his life. But he will survive this day, and a good thing for you, because otherwise you won't survive either. So, are you ready to do a little pretending? Ready to travel back to your fateful day and time? Okay, well, here we go then. So you're up before Reveille today. You've only had a thin, dirty old blanket to cover you during the night. You can't really sleep that well anyway. But the bugle does sound. You hear Reveille, and so you get up. Splash some water on your face to uh, relieve yourself of the dust that covers everything and adds to the dry mouth of battle that's to come. You look down at your uh, socks, filthy socks, barely holding together, and you put on your, your boots that have holes in them, but you're grateful because you actually have boots. You start to smell the coffee that someone has started, and uh, that's going to be one of your sole pleasures today, and you're grateful for that too. Uh, little comforts are pretty big when that's all you've got. You're in the Army now, as they say, and you're an infantryman in the Army of the Potomac, the Northern Army of the Union. Abraham Lincoln is your president, and you're facing off against the Confederate States of America, the Southern States, whose president is Jefferson Davis. I want you to take a moment and notice the coarseness of your blue uniform. You... Uh, also, I want to put on that rucksack again today, and as you do so, you try and adjust your shoulder straps to find an area of your shoulders that hasn't been rubbed raw yet. This is going to be adjusted throughout the day. You're going to be trading minor pains for greater pains, and you're also going to notice that pack smells strongly of salt. 
and you come to realize it's from your own sweat. And within an hour, your pack's going to be soaked again, just as will the back of your uniform. The enemy sergeant behind that wall that you're approaching, he was promoted on the battlefield, having survived the Battle of Chancellorsville, the fabled Gettysburg, and then Chickamauga, too. And his luck better not run out today because it's tied directly to yours. You're up against a real hero, the last thing you're feeling like being, and a hero not due to what he's already done and survived, but what he will do from the other side of that wall he's hunkered down behind, from behind that wall separating today not just the quick from the dead, but the quick from those not very quietly or quickly dying. So on that cheery note, let's load up and start marching in the direction of that enemy wall. It's not until around noon that the first wave of your assaults begin in front of that wall. And no wave reaches as far as that wall. They continue, though, one after another, and they're also mowed down one after the other. The reports are not favorable. Your comrades get as close as 75 feet away from that blasted wall, and that's it. It's going to be your turn any minute. But before you go, you get the chance to look around and see all the carnage that has gone on before you. And you see how it's likely to go for you. You see the killing field between you and that wall, and you see a bottleneck at a ditch that has only three possible crossable bridges. And no matter which one you choose, it appears to be nothing but a slaughter pen. And you've been listening to Richard Hood. And by the way, he is a listener, as we said before, from Valencia, California, and a heck of a storyteller, putting us in the spot, in the time, in the context, which is so important as a storyteller how we should always look at history. No one knew what was going to happen in that war when it started. No one knew what was going to happen when they charged the next wall or the next hill, except from what happened in plain sight from the other guys who had just charged. And it's so true, this civil war, this war between the states did pit brother against brother, father against son. The Revolutionary War did the same thing in large measure too. When we come back, we're going to continue this remarkable story. The story of the Angel of St. Mary's Heights, here on Our American Stories. And we continue with our American stories and Richard Hood's story on the Angel of St. Mary's Heights, 
who you are about to meet in one of the bloodiest battles of the Civil War, Fredericksburg. Let's return to Richard Hood. You're exhausted from marching and fighting, and you're fighting off exhaustion. Now you have to fight with absolutely no adrenaline left. It's almost gone. And your mind is shifting gears down to its most basic and primal functions, while the world around you appears more and more like some kind of outdoor insane asylum. Above the wall, up on Mary's Heights, the opposing Confederate cannons begin to let loose. So when you hear the order to charge, you're going to not only face a continuous sheet of flame from frontal small arms fire directed at you, but dismembering and deadly artillery fire raining from above as well. And later, one of the Confederate artillerymen would remark that not even a chicken could live on that field. You're looking for some way to increase the odds of your survival, and you can't think of a thing. And the insensible amount of death, along with its apparent utter randomness, sickens you. From what you can see, you should be one of this day's 12,600 casualties. And it doesn't look like you're going to be evacuated should you become wounded, which is likely. Nor does it appear that you'll receive first aid. But instead, it does appear that you're going to lie there unattended, becoming just one more member of the choir of moans. Now, as in any fight, your mouth is dry, and at any moment, it might become drier still from the loss of your blood. And then surprisingly to you, despite its overwhelming odds and predictability, that indeed happens. And with the realization of your fears having come upon you, pain and its companions of shock and immobility join forces against you. You're now one casualty among the day's 8,000 casualties. So you're asking yourself, what was so important about that wall? Why couldn't your commander simply have gone around it? As you drift in and out of consciousness, whether half dreaming or awake, thoughts are distilled for you and reduced to one thing and one desire only for water. Finally, night comes on, and though your groans and pleas are lost among the thousands of the others around you, you have never felt more alone. No one is coming. No one will be coming in time. So, weary from battle himself and desperate for rest, the Confederate sergeant has been kept from sleep all this same night thanks to yours and all the other pitiful, disturbing, and debilitating cries of those not quite yet dead. By morning, he can't take it any longer. And so this enemy soldier asks permission to put you out of your misery and uh, end both his side's and your own sufferings. He's just stared at. He's stared at as if he's lost his senses or has battle fatigue. Sniping at the wounded is just not done. But he's no sniper. And what he's asking his commanders for is permission to go over that wall and meet you head on, to come not to silence you, but to bring you water. His commanders tell him of the bullets awaiting him on such a fool's errand, making him a casualty of 
well, either enemy or mistaken friendly fire, and they tell him no. But he is totally aware and totally determined and persistent. Yes, most of the wounded are, like you, his enemy, or were. Now you seem more like fellow mortals, just bleeding out and drying up. He requests to carry a white handkerchief as a sign of ceasefire. And he keeps asking until he gets permission he seeks. But he is told that no handkerchief, no flag of truce will be allowed. He'll be on his own and he'll be all you've got. Your last chance for tomorrow. Meet your sworn enemy, Richard Kirkland, Confederate Army Sergeant, age 20. The odds of help coming to you via Kirkland are less than the odds were of being wounded. There are just too many wounded sprawled in front of that wall. And Kirkland has, well, he's alone and he has no plan, except for the filling of every canteen he can find. And it seems time itself holds its breath as over the wall he slips. With you in that no man's land between earthly consciousness and eternity. Eventually, he does indeed stumble upon you, literally falls over you, and uh, reaching down to support your head, he gives you all he can from the canteen's left. He takes off his jacket and covers you with it. You try to raise your hand in, in astonished thanks, but there's no need as he can read the gratitude in your eyes. Not a shot is heard in that hour and a half that Kirkland spends racing from soldier to soldier as if in respectful awe of what is happening and what he's risking. All that is heard are the plaintive cries for the water that is now at least a possibility. He attends to friend and foe alike, both sides Americans, both sides brothers of a sort once again, even if only brothers of the dust. Years later, some will claim it wasn't Kirkland, but someone else, or many other someone else's. Others will claim that he was sniped at, even wounded. But you know better, because you were there. Although you'll wonder, for the rest of your life, why he did it. What was it that was worth more to him than his own physical life? How could he be so certain there was something even more important than his own fears? What or who puts that instinct or knowledge into people that results in bringing the kingdom of heaven, not just onto earth, but overcoming a hell on earth? You won't hear Kirkland's name mentioned nowadays, but you see, it doesn't matter he's not a household name because heroes don't do heroic things for the fame. Their selflessness can inspire us to other, if lesser, acts of love. Love, we must remember, is an action. While Kirkland indeed survived this day, as a result, you did as well, his eventual dying concern was still for others, particularly his father, whom he wanted to know that his son had died right. Perhaps more important is living right, day by day, and to do that, you and I must know what we are living for, why we were given life. This is 
everyone's foundation so that building up and out from that foundation brings meaning and purpose to our lives so that as much of our lives as possible bring relief and life to others. You know, you have to wonder why such stories of heroism create such a unique response in us, psychologically, physiologically, spiritually. It seems to contradict a spirit-less, self-serving, survival of the fittest and purposeless worldview. Perhaps the Brothers' War was but one act in a long play designed to help us recognize and appreciate the true cost of love, of redemption, and reconciliation. And a great job, as always, to Monty Montgomery, a proud Hillsdale grad, and a superb piece of storytelling by Richard Hood. And again, he's one of our listeners from Valencia, California, and we'd love to hear your stories. We're serious about this, folks. I believe the American people are better storytellers than half the professionals in Hollywood, New York, and our main centers of media and entertainment. And Richard just proved the case. Send your stories and suggestions to OurAmericanNetwork.org. And my goodness, this civil war, this war between brothers and fathers and sons, 618,000 were killed. 618,000. At the time, the population of this country was a mere 30 million. So in today's terms, imagine losing six and a quarter million boys and girls on our own soil in a battle over law, custom, heritage. A remarkable thing, a remarkable story. A special thanks to Richard Hood. And here at Our American Stories, always we're trying to connect the stories of the past with the present and the future. The story of the angel at St. Mary's Heights here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about, well, just about everything here on this show. And one of our favorite regular features is a feature called Final Thoughts. And today, our regular contributor, Bill Bright, tells us a story from his little town, Antrim, New Hampshire. Andrum's voters elected me a cemetery trustee in 2018. I'd helped two other trustees govern the town's four public cemeteries. It's meant receiving occasional telephone calls from relatives of deceased persons who wanted to be buried in Antrim. Among the usual reasons for this are that the deceased was born or spent many happy summers in the town. The callers generally asked about getting the grave dug. I gather the correct term of art is opening the grave. 
I referred them to a pleasant, good-natured, and compassionate gentleman with a backhoe who performs this office for a funeral parlor in the neighboring town of Hillsborough and for anyone else in the area who needs his services. Antrim's public cemeteries are Center, Meeting House Hill, North Branch, and Over East. I visited them all before my election. The town's Department of Highways had maintained them well. Three of the four are now full, with many dark gray, heavily weathered slate markers from the 18th and 19th centuries. Only North Branch is active, which is to say new customers are welcome. Recently, after a friendly and sympathetic chat with an older woman who wishes to bury her son's remains here, I strolled down to Cemetery Road, a well-kept dirt road that borders my property, just beyond an unnamed stream that flows from my land towards Steele's Pond and the North Branch River. It was amidst the heat wave in mid-July 2019. The slightest breeze was welcome. As is usually the case with rural dirt roads, the trees lining both sides of the right-of-way had grown tall and large enough to form a kind of green tunnel which I found beautiful and soothing. Some of the older trees where the top of the hill seemed to have grown as mirrors of one another, their upper branches entwined. Perhaps they are ideal lovers growing side by side and together completing one another. I reached the cemetery and found the second gate open so I entered and found my caller's family plot. It is large, and inspires confidence that her relatives will find room there long after I am gone. When I was a child, my family lived at 57 Columbia Street in Mohawk, New York, the first house my parents owned. It was across from the Mohawk Cemetery. My mother occasionally noted that whatever one might say about a cemetery, its occupants were quiet neighbors. I often walked through it. I found the markers a kind of history book, nearly all bearing the names of ordinary people whose lives were quietly lived in a small town away from the shouting and tumult of the great world. The Mohawk Cemetery had only one distinguished occupant, Francis Elias Spinner, who had been Herkimer County Sheriff, a militia general, a three-term U.S. representative, once a Democrat, twice a Republican, and treasurer of the United States under Presidents Lincoln, Johnson, and Grant. He was also the first federal executive to hire women for clerical work on the same basis as men. He was renowned for his flamboyantly elaborate signature, which appeared on millions of United States notes. He had developed it consciously to discourage counterfeiting. The signature appears on his grave marker in the Mohawk Cemetery. It also appears on the plinth of his monument across the Mohawk River in Herkimer, New York, which also bears this quotation. The fact that I was instrumental in introducing women to employment in the offices of the government gives me more real satisfaction than all the other deeds of my life. Coming back to my summer's day in the North Branch Cemetery, I paused for a few moments to look north across the valley of the North Branch River toward Campbell Mountain in Hillsborough. Then I went down the rows of stones, noting several fellows who cantered off with the New Hampshire Dragoons during the Civil War, and a quantity who had served in World Wars I and II. One fellow had served in both. When I was a boy, such men and women called themselves retreads. There were also a few who had served in Vietnam. There were also a few revolutionaries, mostly identified by the militia company in which they had served. 
Although I know he's buried in North Branch, I couldn't find a marker for the long-lived George Gates. Born August 8, 1753, and died December 13, 1845. He had fought at Bunker Hill on June 17, 1775. Among those commanded, don't fire until you see the whites of their eyes, and helped prove, as one British officer wrote, that the Americans are full as good soldiers as ours. One fellow named Tuttle, an old New England family, had a few small stones placed atop his marker. It's a touching custom derived from the Jews. Flowers fade, stones endure. Perhaps a secular meaning might be found too. As long as one is remembered by someone, one never truly dies. So I found a suitable pebble in the dirt road I was on and placed it among the others on the Tuttle marker. Two markers were particularly memorable. One read, Archie F. Perry, 1886-1950, an honest man. There are worse things for which to be remembered. The other was a bench for a member of an old Antrim family whose relatives I know. It reads, Dennis C. Gale, Sr., 1943 to 2008. We sit here, thankful he was the man he didn't have to be. There were several other benches about North Branch. They reminded me of the 19th century custom of picnicking in cemeteries, bringing the baskets to the family plots. Before Sir Alexander Fleming identified penicillin, death was a constant visitor for many families. Perhaps this custom allowed people to share good times with their deceased relatives. It waned by the 20s as early deaths became less common. The Penches also reminded me of Conrad Aiken, the Pulitzer Prize-winning poet and man of letters who retired to Savannah, where he had been born. He often sat by his parents' grave in Bonaventure Cemetery, at least in part for the view of the harbor and of the arriving and departing merchantmen. He once saw a ship with an intriguing name heading down to the sea. He did some research at the Port Authority where he confirmed the ship's name and looked up her destination. That information gave him a two-line poem. Aiken's tombstone is a bench. He wanted people to sit and enjoy a martini by his grave. On it is the poem, which is his epitaph. Cosmos Mariner, Destination Unknown. And great job, as always, to Robbie Davis for his work here at Our American Stories. And a special thanks to Bill Bright for this piece. He's one of our regular contributors and just a great voice. And my goodness, we run for all kinds of offices or serve in all kinds of ways in our great country. And he's the cemetery trustee in little Antrim, New Hampshire. And Antrim is a town of 2,600 in Hillsbury County, and a lot of people, some are there, and that's why quite a number of people want to be buried there. They weren't just born there. They experienced some of the happiest times of their life, going away to just escape the New York heat or the Philadelphia heat, those northeast cities. People run north in the summertime. They escape to the woods and to the, to the expanses of, of New England. And my goodness, I keep thinking of Archie F. Perry, 1886 to 1950. And all it says on his grave marker are three words, an honest man. 
It doesn't get better than that. And by the way, we'd love to hear your final thought stories, stories about death, stories from people who are in their final days. There are not more interesting stories than that. Or it could even just be a eulogy. My goodness, the eulogies we heard from the Kobe Bryant memorial, from the memorial of Arnold Palmer, which is some, it's some of the best material we've ever put on the air. The storytelling is so beautiful. Again, send all of your stories and suggestions to OurAmericanStories.com. Bill Bright, more of his storytelling from the little part of America called Antrim, New Hampshire, here on Our American Story. is our American stories and now it's time for another rule of law story as a part of our rule of law series where we show you the presence or absence of the rule of law and how it affects all of our lives here's Robbie with the next installment we have the freedom to call ourselves what we are we have the freedom to well speak And we expect that this is protected by the Constitution, unlike, say, running a red light. Now, that you should be punished for. But what if you got a ticket for speaking about red lights? Well, that happened in Beaverton, Oregon, to Mats Jarlstrom. He was also told that he wasn't an engineer, which he was. So, I grew up in Sweden. I listened actually to R&B music a lot when I was growing up. It was kind of the disco age, lots of bass, uh, drums, and uh, so I was interested in reproducing that with uh, loudspeakers. And uh, that's actually the reason why I started to become a, uh, an electronics engineer. So I had a four-year electronics courses in becoming an engineer in that field. After that, I went into Linshipman's Technical College to continue. Uh, There I actually met uh, an American exchange student, uh, a cute girl. That's actually the reason why I finally ended up in the United States. A few decades later in Beaverton, Oregon, this whole red light business started. Well, for for me personally, it it started out when uh, my wife uh, received a red light camera citation in the mail. Didn't really pay attention to traffic signals. And I think most people don't really pay attention to them more than, hey, they need to stop or go. But this time, Mats gave it a little more interest than usual. Well, a lot more. Mats, in his own free time, took an approach that most of us would never even think to. Due to his rather inquisitive nature, and the fact that his wife had only run the light by 12 one-hundredths of a second. So it was a really small margin that uh, she had triggered the system with. And uh, so I was curious to see or find out more about it. And my wife and I went to the intersection and actually used a video camera to to study the the timing of this device. And when they compared their findings to the times that the city of Beaverton had listed on their website, turns out the red light was changing faster than the website said it should. So uh, we thought that, uh, hey, my wife could bring this information into the courtroom, the municipal court, and present that to the judge and see if she can get the ticket dismissed. And uh, the judge literally just said, hey, Look at the video here, it looks like you ran a red light. So it proves that you did something wrong and uh, you have to pay. 
that didn't really sit so well with me so I took it in actually to the city hall and uh, brought this information to them and uh, there I was equally dismissed. While investigating traffic lights, he came across an equation that's meant to calculate how long a yellow light needs to be for cars to stop, but he noticed something was wrong. This equation that's used mainly in the United States of America um, was developed back in 1959. However, it's only applicable for straight-through lanes uh, because uh, it's designed to be a minimum stopping distance uh, that you traverse uh, at constant speed. And uh, you can only traverse that uh, distance uh, at constant speed if you go straight through an intersection. And uh, it doesn't then apply to when you make a turn. I thought uh, initially that by taking this information that I had learned to uh, the Board of Engineers here in the state of Oregon, they can bring that information out to our practicing engineers uh, around the state. But instead of Looking into the subject matter that I brought to their attention, they were more interested in that I had said that I was a Swedish electronics engineer. So there were two things that they were complaining um, that I did wrong or illegally, and that was that I called myself an engineer without being licensed in the state of Oregon. And the second one was that I actually talked about traffic signals without being licensed to do so. I actually talked to the Board of Engineers of uh, well, the, the First Amendment rights that we have not only in the U.S. Constitution and then also in uh, the, the Oregon's Constitution itself. Uh, but they ignored all those uh, things uh, that I brought up to their attention. Um, so I thought that was clear that I could move on and, and uh, continue with my quest. And in his research, Matt's figured out a way to solve the problem of traffic lights not taking account for people making turns, you know, as one does in their free time. And I presented that one in, in an email that I sent out actually to 60 Minutes and to the National Board of Engineers. I also forwarded that email to the Board of Engineers, which they then later deemed to be illegal. And that's how it actually started uh, with an investigation by the board that lasted uh, literally two years, or almost two years, and, and a fine of uh, $500. Um, it was uh, actually very uh, stressful to be in, under an investigation, and especially if you're being told that you're illegal for saying who you are. I am a, a Swedish engineer, and uh, it, it hurt me uh, well, to the core. To be honest with you, I just wanted to bring information out so we can talk about it. I'm just sharing some ideas. And uh, I think that's a fundamental thing for all of us, that we should be able to be free to share ideas. If we don't have any ideas uh, or people don't dare to share ideas, that means we don't have any ideas to, uh, to, to pick from. And obviously, that's not good for, for the whole. There's this thing in America called the rule of law. It's the idea that there are publicly known, stable laws that are applied to everyone. So in Matt's case, the rule of law is that the First Amendment covers his right to speak truthfully and openly. Truthfully about who he is and openly about any ideas. The government can't just violate rights because they want to. If they do, because of the rule of law, Matt can do something about it. He can go to court, point to the law, in this case the Constitution, and say this can't be done. And a court of law rules on it. And he did. 
With the help of the Institute for Justice, Matz took the engineering board to court and sued them to secure his rights. Here's Matz's lawyer from the Institute for Justice, Sam Gedge. The board has had a really remarkable history of enforcing these laws against all kinds of different people. And the board's enforcement practices really fell into two camps. One, they went after people who simply talked about technical topics, like Matt's talking about yellow traffic lights, or like people talking about power plants, or, or landfills, or really any kind of engineering topic you can think of. At the same time, though, the board was equally aggressive in policing the word engineer. So all of the software engineers working at Intel in Oregon, uh, couldn't call themselves engineers, um, you know, a sanitation engineer couldn't call themselves an engineer, a domestic engineer couldn't call themselves an engineer. And for most people who were caught up in these really onerous enforcement proceedings, it simply wasn't worth it to hire a lawyer and to, to try to vindicate their First Amendment rights. So the board just kept getting away with it. There is no engineering exception to the First Amendment. Our claims really fell into two buckets. One, Matz had a First Amendment right to talk about the math behind traffic lights, and he wanted to continue talking about traffic lights. And we needed a federal court order securing his right to do that. And likewise, uh, we sought similar relief um, from the federal courts uh, protecting his right to describe himself truthfully using the word engineer. And thankfully, the courts ended up siding in Matz's favor. So we, um, well, could uh, even help all engineers here in Oregon, and uh, they will probably help across the country as well to be able to say who we are without being deemed illegal. So how has he been using his, not necessarily newfound, but newly affirmed freedom? I have um, uh, presented actually um, my ideas to the Institute of Transportation Engineers uh, it's an international organization uh, based in uh, Washington, D.C. They have about 15,000 members uh, in 90 countries. And um, right now, they're going to have a, an appeals board set up where I can do or go and present my, uh, my ideas and my uh, solutions uh, because I feel it, it's, it's important. I don't feel like people should get a uh, citation for just, uh, well, doing a safe and comfortable uh, turn. And um, here in Oregon, the citation is uh, $260. And uh, for a low-income person or family, that is a big uh, expense for not necessarily doing anything wrong. The, the second one is also, I feel like um, we need to be prepared for autonomous vehicles. Uh, because they are going to be programmed to drive through intersections safely and comfortably. Uh, and that's actually what we should also be uh, doing today as humans. We need to be able to drive through an intersection safely and comfortably without having to slam on the brakes or accelerate into the intersection to kind of fix the, the underlying problems that we have today. And uh, I think uh, I have the voice right now to do so. And the solution he presented to the board of 15,000 individuals in 90 countries? It was accepted and is being pushed out internationally. And all without a government-issued engineering license. And great job as always to Robbie Davis. And a special thanks to the Institute for Justice for taking on cases like this pro bono. And they do this all across the country. And Matt Jarlstrom for doing what he did and challenging the authorities, and the experts in his home state. 
And my goodness, there is no engineering exception to the First Amendment, especially if you're an engineer. You should be able to comment on things that relate to engineering. And if you want to learn more about the Institute for Justice, go to ij.org. They do terrific work. And my goodness, what a job they did here helping Matt Yalstrom. And he's right. 260 bucks is real money to a lot of Americans. Matt Yalstrom's story, another part of our Rule of Law series here on Our American Story. <laughs> 